our dynasty on the morning bliss. Let's welcome our guest, uh, um, our beloved brother, Menzik Agudu Maseko, who's an Africologist. And uh, this morning on our dynasty, we continue the conversation we had uh, two days ago, speaking about women and power in post-colonial Africa. And today we decided that we're going to speak more specifically about these uh, famous queens and, and leaders in Africa that are not really hailed the way they're supposed to be hailed. So we're going to get educated today. A very good morning, Brother Menzi. Always a pleasure having you. Good morning to everyone. Togo Zakesla. This morning we speak of the beauty of our um, uh, continent through her feminine power, her feminine authority and queen, queendom. So when did the African queen, queendom begin? Oh, yes, right straight to the point. <laughs> so the beginnings of African queendom are quite, uh, I would say, a cake, very old, very, very old. So the beginning of African kingdoms begins with the beginning, basically, of... Um, it, it begins, in, let me just say, in a more religious setting, whereby um, back in the days, uh, back, I would say in prehistorical times, before there were male kingdoms, before there were places ruled by men, before we established states as Africans, when we were living, uh, I would say, in egalitarian societies which were made up of agriculture at most. At that time, African people worshipped uh, goddesses. The first object, so the first uh, 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 personalities that were worshipped were, let me just start in the south, were, of course, figures such as Nomkubuluane, uh, in which there would be ceremonies to propitiate her, to ask her for rain, to ask her for prosperity, to ask the, someone who is called Ngosadana Yezu. Um, uh, 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 Brother yes. Menzi, I'm going to ask you, don't go too fast. So yes. you've spoken about Nomkubuluane. Explain her yes. for us in depth. Because you remember okay. our, our history books in, in school don't speak of her. Well, it's difficult for history to speak of Nomkubuluane because Nomkubuluane, even amongst uh, Eurocentric historians, is looked at as a, as, as a, as a mythical figure. Now, it's just, myth in Africa is quite a different game than myth in academia or in Eurocentric circles. When we speak about myth in Africa, we are actually talking about living, living stories, living histories, the history of those that existed before uh, the, 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 the writing of stories, even in Africa. Those are uh, 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 figures or personalities or... Persona, yeah, yeah. Let me just say personalities uh, that live that live in a time beyond uh, this kind of time, which is called uh, linear time, right? So Nkubuluane, according to the Nguni people, uh, and I say I use the word Nguni on on purpose to avoid using the word Zulu because the word Zulu uh, to to depict the kingdom uh, only begins 200 years ago, but now Nkubuluane is known as a Zulu uh, reign. Goddess, right? But what we call her is Ngosazana Yezu. 
Now, in Bosa Zona Yezulu is a, 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 a carry over from ancient Nile Valley Queen of the Water. Now, so Nomkulani being Bosa Zona Yezulu is looked at in the same manner as the ancient Egyptian Nut, for example. Uh, Nut being the sky goddess, the goddess that wears uh, a blanket of stars, let me put it that way. She wears a blanket of stars because she presides over everything. She's the mother of all the gods. She's the mother of all the kings. She's the mother of all uh, sacred rituals. She is the one that presides over all of them. She may not be seen with the naked eye, but when you look up into the sky and see the stars and see the sun being born every morning without fail, see the moon in its phases, we see the workings of Nomkubulwane. We do not see a male figure. We see a female uh, attribute of uh, birth and rebirth, uh, nurture, uh, provi- provision, provision of rain, provision of sun, provision of everything that is under uh, the sky dome is the provision of Nomkubulwane. And this, only in South, in South Africa do we call it Nomkubulwane. Mm-hmm. Many other African kingdoms have different names the same, just like I mentioned in ancient Egypt, which was called Nut. In other places, she's called Yemaya. In other places, she's called Oshun. In other places, she's called by many various other names. So that's Nomkubulan. So African women-centered kingdoms begin with the worship of the female as the mother of all life. And then that is passed on into the social and cultural setting, whereby even men who reign. They reign on behalf of their great-grandmother. There is always a queen mother who sits some usually invisible to the most to the public eye because the men, uh, they're the ones that fight battles of defense, of expansion and all these, and all these things, political uh, wars. You know, only later then do you see women emerging from being queen mothers or princesses or consorts. Then they emerge uh, in the first centuries, you know, as uh, especially in, in, in the most ancient would be in uh, the Kush, in the Kushite kingdoms, uh, with Queen Amenirama's who reigned in the uh, kingdom of Kush, in Meru, in Pata. And she reigned there and she defeated Roman invaders. So she began to take on those attributes that were attributed to men the battle, the, the, the warrior, the warrior king. So now with her, Queen Amenirama's of Kush you started to see warrior queen. And then she said the president because there were many warrior queens after her. Hmm. So we've we've never had a deficit from the beginning in Africa of uh, woman queendom. And I, I, I'm being very specific when I say woman queendom because people will think that it has always just been kingdom that is run by men. Mm. You see, the Kingdoms and uh, any rulership is a, 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 a platform of uh, it's, a, it's a place of it's a region of uh, contestation, you know. So even with the queen, it is not like it was just easy for someone to, who is a woman to just step up and uh, and rule. There were various various intrigues. There were various scandals. There were various battles. There was a lot of politicking that happened to ensure that. The right person, because rulership, a kingdom, uh, we, let's face it, is about the fitness to rule, fitness to govern, fitness to uh, uh, influence positively the 
the, 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 the affairs of your country. So even in ancient Africa, it was not like uh, a queen just would just walk into the throne and say, okay, I'm the queen because I'm Yuzarangubani. My bloodline, I'm the, I'm, the, I'm the first princess of King's Bandang. You know, it, it, it was always a, 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 a space of contestation uh, where people had to earn their right to reign. Just like the queens that I've just mentioned, they also had to earn their right to reign. Uh, I would make an example of uh, like Queen Ashantiwa. Queen Ashantiwa uh, of uh, of the Ashanti Kingdom, uh, which is now called Ghana. Uh, she, she 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 was, I would say, the president of what is called in Ghana the Golden Stool, uh, which really is a, a a representation of power, culture, and uh, abundance. In, uh, uh, in the in the land um, of the um, in, in the house not house but in the Ashanti kingdom. So Queen Ashanti was sat on the throne of her fathers and her grandfathers. But she sat on the throne because there was a a, a particular time when women were being there was influence again. Like I said, I think in the last conversation. The the, 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 the the Ashanti and the Ghanaian kingdom, because it was a big trader in gold with uh, various other civilizations, the influence of women was beginning to wane. And so Queen Ashanti rose to power and took over the golden stool, which is basically the golden throne, which is not sits on that golden throne, but it's a representation of ancient uh, rule in that region of the Ashanti. Right? So when she took over power, it was a time of re- of, I would say, revolution, where she had to uh, insist and actually preside over not just the stability of the country, but the recentering of women in uh, uh, in, in, in Western in the Western African Kingdom, because the influence of the West had begun to be shown. It had began because of the battle for gold, the battle for gold mines, and the battle for land. So she 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 stood for advocacy for women. Uh, in power, because there were the, 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 it was a time when the role of women was being erased by uh, the, by certain men who believed that women had no place. So you see, she had to battle in a battle that they had to uh, uh, win so that they can actually reign. Same with Queen Zenga of the Bande, uh, which was which is uh, Angola now. But Angola at that time when she reigned, it was part of the Congo region. It was part of uh, that uh, West African, Central African, uh, greater uh, kingdom. So she took over power uh, in Dongo uh, and a place called Matamba. Uh, she took over power in a place where the Portuguese had begun to, this is the 15th century, 16th story, when the Portuguese had begun to cut into the land and uh, uh, instill both Christian values and their own uh, moral code. But she refused both Christianity and the colonial strategy. That's Queen Zinga of Bande. Let's hold it there for now. We'll uh, come back and we've got some messages from our listeners um, and we'll play those and continue with this great information. Africa's Queendom. Oh, I'm loving this conversation. 0614-104-107. That is our WhatsApp number. Please do interact. Our Dynasty on the Morning Bliss. Can you tell me young ones who are we today? 
On our dynasty uh, this morning, uh, we're in conversation uh, with a great African leader, uh, Africologist Menzi Kakudu Masego. We are talking about women and power in post and pre-colonial Africa. Uh, he's been taking us uh, through some of the great uh, queens and uh, leaders who are female in African history. So this notion that uh, the Africans and Africa are very anti-woman and women are suppressed is something that is clearly foreign to us uh, from what I'm learning in this conversation. Join in on our conversation, 0614104107. That's our WhatsApp number, 41391 SMS number. Uh, uh, Brother Menzi, I'm going to some voice notes. Let's listen to them and uh, we'll respond after. That's great. This is Patricia Tabo here from Lentrelabatu and greetings to Babu Menzi Maseko. Look, I appreciate the history, Nobkubuluani and all these great kingdoms led by women. And I also, in fact, I was tweeting early this week to say, Watintumfazi, Watintimpogoto. So, our women have always been a rock, you know, in Sitwana and Sisuturiri, Meotwaratipakamobukhali. So it's good and well that we learn about these heroines and heroes of our, of our history as Africans. But what do we do, you know, because black people still live in poverty, we still live in shacks, our children still die in pet toilets. You know, we, we have been, we live in such inhumane conditions. So what can we do to, to change our situation based on the learnings and the lessons from such history? I sure, uh, that's our current, uh, that's our current state. Uh, and I love the question because it's taking where we're from and looking at where we are now. What can be done is the question, Brother Menz. Uh, it's a great question. Uh, the main thing that can be done is uh, the teaching of African history in every space possible, using every medium possible. And the teaching of African history, and especially the greatness of African history, uh, both uh, the history of uh, the leading women as well as influential women, not just women who are, uh, I always insist that uh, our history is not just about uh, nostalgic uh, wishing for all of us to be queens and kings, you know. Some of us come from clans which are maternal uh, kingdom clans or maternal uh, queendom clans, uh, lead, leading uh, leading clans and leading nations and leading, uh, you know, great families you know, that became famous. But it's very, very important in the teaching of African history that we do not only essentialize certain genders or essentialize certain uh, classes of people, so to speak. You know, it's important to understand who were the porters, who were the builders, who were the 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 the, 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 the healers uh, that are famous in African history, and why are they famous? Who were the bad ones, and how did the bad ones? How how did you deal with the evil ones, and how did you deal with uh, those uh, that had a positive impact? Right. So, in order to deal with the current Surge of basically uh, uh, self-inflicted violence amongst ourselves, and also 
the teaching of Africology needs to permeate every single space in our media. So of course, looking at media as another space of education, but also the academy. If the academy is still um, based on Eurocentric knowledge system, then decolonization needs to be sped up, Africanization needs to be sped up, and the remaking of our social structures according to African ethics, which of course, again, are presided over by Amakosigas. When I say presided over by Amakosigas, I mean that women being the natural nurturer and the natural maternal leader of the home. She takes care of the first nucleus. She takes care, of course, in partnership with her king. She takes care of the nucleus of the family, not just in material terms, but in spiritual terms too. So there is no foundation of African uh, 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 harmony and social living when there is no spiritual foundation. And the spiritual foundation is set by the mother. The mother needs to know who she is she needs to know where she comes from. She needs to know what kind of men and women she is raising in what kind of world. Not to raise them in fear, but to raise them in knowledge of self and knowledge of what can they contribute to society that can be beneficial. But there is a lot that needs to be done right now um, to, to sway us in the right direction, right, uh, Brother Menzi? Absolutely. As Africans, because... As much as the, the motherhead is a very, very revered in post-colonial Africa right now, uh, there's a lot of oppression on women and suppression on women. And hence, we are not seeing um, women uh, queens rise up. Uh, even in our nuclear families, women are being mm. suppressed and oppressed. And this is something that needs to be changed. Now that we are speaking about it, how... How do you suggest that this can be changed in the here and now? Um, okay, the first level, again, I said it's education. Yeah. But then the next level is uh, legislation. Yes. You know? And then the implementation of that legislation needs to be enforced by society itself. African society, the people, what they, what is called civil society, cannot be just a, a, a platform of NGOs that are influenced by, by, by outside uh, external values like from the U, United Nations or all that. The United Nations, United Nations is not a negative space, but there's a tendency for organizations such as the United Nations to take care of humanitarian issues, women's rights, uh, environmental rights, and basically the rights of people everywhere. There's a, intergovernmental, multinational kind of bodies. The problem with them, if they are not localized, if they do not respect the ways, the indigenous knowledge systems of the people that they are uh, advising or funding or presiding over, the tendency is to um, create a kind of cultural imperialism whereby uh, the, 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 the cultural value of uh, what we call the global, the global north, you know, uh, tend to be superimposed on the global south. This basically means that whatever is uh, 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 tabled at the UN by educated women from all kinds of races, what happens is the education, whatever education, even those women and those lawmakers and policymakers 
make, whatever values that they promote, if they are not grounded on knowledge of self and knowledge of their Afri- on Africology, let me put it that way, if it's not grounded on Africology, it becomes a knowledge system, you know, the ontological break, basically, or what they call it, epistemicide, whereby the knowledge and information that is indigenous to you is uh, overcome or suppressed by the knowledge that seems to come from superior uh, civilizations. And superior civilization is, an, is of course, a, a, what do you call it, a, um, a, a part of colonial mentality whereby you look at civilization according to the material the material uh, 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 benefits not just benefits but the material the, the, the outside you know looking at everything from the outside eye so if you start from the point of africology you know that you are not just dealing with education you're dealing with law lawmaking and lawmaking is to be indigenous contextual regenerative nature nature focused so those things they are not just rhetoric these are things that require implementation on the ground level by civil society, a civil society that is based on African value systems. And to have those value systems, they have to be repeated in the media again. They have to be repeated in the education system so that we can remove a reverence for Greece, reverence for Rome, reverence for Christendom, reverence for Islamism, whereby people uh, even who are very proudly African they still hold on to Arab names, Arab religion, Arab this and that, Christian, Roman, all these isms that may have some positive attributes, of course, to them. But if you look deeply into them, they are basically knowledge systems that come from elsewhere. And when they are applied in our setting and we are thinking we're going to have solutions for our social ills by using you know, it's like uh, another great mother. What's her name? Uh, I forgot her name, but she said that um, um, I'll remember her name now. Uh, she's a writer from the United States. She was a writer. She said that the master's tool, she wrote a little booklet called The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House. Hmm. Basically, meaning, paraphrasing her, it basically means that uh, you cannot use the tools of oppression to create your freedom. Just like a lot of our brothers and sisters think they can use, you know, uh, the Christ figure. Oh, it's, it's Jesus was a revolutionary, uh, so therefore we are revolutionaries who, who, who are who believe in fear uh, Jesus Christ, you know. But you forget that just the name alone brings with it a whole lot of cultural uh, 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 imperialism, a lot of Romanism, a lot of romantic uh, notions of what rulership and leadership and spiritual power is supposed to be. You are leaving what at home is adequate to fix your problems, but you are jumping to Jerusalem to look for solutions, you see. So those are the little things that we need to take care of and stop actually being very diplomatic about them and actually remove them like the thorn in the flesh that they are to us and our societies. Because we have thousands and thousands of churches in every square meter of the ghetto that we live in, but they're not creating the solutions. They're creating solutions for the for the pastor and the pastor's wife, but they're not creating solutions economically for anybody else. If you look at the statistics mm. of how many churches, we have as many churches as we have brothels and taverns. You know, they are equally the same amount, but they are all pushing the same kind of ideology 
of materialism, of capitalism, of private property. This is mine. But socially, in social, in the in the in the realm of social cohesion, and uh, creating a value system that can create civilizations for us, we do not see those things happening in those institutions. They're just basically romantic. Mm-hmm. They're romantic because they are from Rome. They're not from Africa. They're not based on our history. They're not based on our history. They're not based on how, uh, uh, you know, if you look at all the different queens, the, the different warrior women, from Boyaneanda in Zimbabwe, who resisted Christianity and influenced spiritually the warriors of the first Chimurenga and the second Chimurenga, you know, uh, Chimurenga being the, 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 the people's struggle against colonialism and colonial mentality. If you look at all these women, Queen Muhomosa, who influenced the Naya Pingi movement, which later influenced the Rastafarian movement. All these different queens were healers in the community. Not all of them were kings. Some were healers, spiritual leaders in the community. All of them, too, the, every number of them, from even Zinga, they resisted the spiritual supremacy of the foreigner. Until the death, they died not only for defending land, they died for defense for defending the spiritual legacy of their ancestors. So this is very important. You cannot have a change that starts in the branches. You have to start at the root. What is the root of our problem in Africa? The root of our problem is white, monopoly, racist supremacy, basically. If you deal with that, and the women have shown, throughout centuries, they have shown that you need to begin with the pillar. And the pillar is the spiritual power of the nation. Which is held by Makosigas. Hey, this is powerful. This is powerful. Let's go to another voice note. Good morning, A-teamers, and happy holidays. Well, I just have one simple question, right? So we have Earth, and Earth is called Mother Nature. I just wanted to find out why is it called Mother Nature? Why is it labeled after a woman? I know it gives birth, but to foods and stuff. But if you look, still women are oppressed. Women are not taken seriously. Women are still being subjected to people who are only good in the kitchen and in other places. But we are not good enough to be CEOs. We are not good enough to be bigger than men. What causes that? I love that question. question. It's, I, I love it, Mother uh, uh, Menzi, because I'm, I'm looking at the industry that I work in. Primetime shows throughout South Africa, if you look, those, those shows are ran by men. Mm. So that means the woman's voice is already you know, subliminal. Yeah, it's a, it, it doesn't mm. mean much. Um, mm. But then I also remember being in a particular meeting, a setting where in this industry, we were told how women are in the kitchen and are bearing children as if it is something that is a handicap. Um, mm. they, they, they are busy doing other things. They are not participating in robust conversations. And for me, that was offensive. And for a lot of my female uh, colleagues in an industry that is supposed to be open and, um, you know, very, very accommodating and progressive. And then you also look at our politics. We are clapping hands for the uh, minimal percentage of women that are in politics, in leadership, in traditional Mm. leadership. Mother Nature, that's what we call her. 
This question yes. is very powerful. Well, the, the women may be in political positions, they may be, but it seems like they are put there by men. You know, they are placed there by powerful men. They are rubbing shoulders with their male counterparts who are supposed to be leaders. But the fact is, that's just basis. You know, in Southern Africa, specifically in South Africa, we have uh, what I say uh, proxy leaders, basically managers managers of of neo-colonialism. They are managing the the, the, the colonial enterprise, the, 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 the extractive economy in mining, in farming. Uh, uh, farming, of course, which is still as much as there's many great women doing great work in the farming industry. Uh, you, you, you just have to do your research and look at how much of that industry uh, influences the buying. Uh, well, let me put it this way: How much are the products uh, produced by women uh, finding themselves in? Uh, how do we find them in, in Woolies? How do you know that this the product? You know, it's just like we have green labeling. People think something is organic or it's fresh or it's uh, 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 what's the word, all this kind of uh, fresh produce. Can't we also have labeling showing that no, this particular apple, this bag of apples comes from a farm run by a black woman? You know, those things are very easy to do. Those are the kind of things that even uh, associations like the, what, what do they call it? FA, I forgot the one that's run by Tebe, Tebe. There's an organization that promotes African, South African, South African, South African culture, South African mm, tourism, and all South that. And yes, so those kinds of things. Yeah. Yes, those kinds of organizations have big budgets that are supposed to deal with certain simple things like labeling yeah. even South African products. So this particular bead, or this particular hat, or this particular wool woolworths uh, t-shirt, or uh, the pick and pay t-shirt. This one comes from a company owned by a woman, you know? Just like you label things organic and you label things uh, uh, 100% or 70% or 20% this, you can say this company is run 70% by women. Those are the kind of things that in poly, on a policy level, when I was talking about implementation earlier, those are the basic things that you're supposed to see. But then when you have women reigning in power, both in, uh, in corporate South Africa, in the banking sector, in the political sector, Yet they do not look at those things and actually do evaluation and monitoring to see whether these things are actually happening. And they are not there to push the agenda of centering women. They are there basically to earn a living for themselves and their own families, not for the society. They're not there to change the status quo. They're not there to shift the paradigm. They are basically there to be uh, men in skirts, basically. Men hmm. who are, they are women but they are pushing patriarchy. Because, you know, I was telling to some other brothers and sisters that patriarchy can be be pushed and perpetuated by women. Women who are not transformed. In most times, women are the perpetuators of toxic masculinity and patriarchy. They're the ones who will will, uh, hush out a story of, um, of, of another child being molested or um, mm. oppress mm. a fellow female colleague mm. Um, mm. or a, a female political leader. Women are mm. perpetrators and we need to get back to our queendoms um, in order for us to succeed. Brother, uh, Brother Menzi, can, can we mm. go back to the queens? So we've mentioned Yashantiwa, we've mentioned Queen uh, uh, Njinga. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 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 there's a queen that I, I would love us to look at uh, from Ethiopia. 
Um, mm. You know, we've got uh, the Queen of Sheba, who's even written in uh, uh, books like the, the Bible. Bible. Yeah, mm. Makeda. Well, Queen Makeda, for me, is part of those stories that I said, if you remember earlier, I spoke about African mythology being different from Western mythology. Now, Queen Makeda represents, for me, a, a global power, uh, the global power of, there's a, 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 a word that I used to write about, I think I may have made up the word, but it, it has something to do with uh, mythopoetry, mythopoetics, right? Whereby something, let's say there was a queen, Queen Makosazana, for example, uh, a thousand years ago, but her story was passed on uh, orally. Uh, and then when it becomes written, uh, you will get 40% of the story and the rest of the 60% is lost in translation and is lost through the annals of history. Such is the story of Queen Makeda for me. Queen Makeda's story existed before the canonization of the Hebrew Bible as we know it now because Queen Makeda is a Kandake who represents the Queens of Kush, which is a, a, a region of South Sudan or the whole Sudan area, uh, including Ethiopia, including Djibouti, including uh, certain parts of East, Northeast Africa. This this area, this Nile Valley region, is a region where queens have existed for millennia. So when you speak of Queen Mac, Queen Makeda, the one who went to see Solomon and, to, and, and, and went there with gold and spices and all these gifts to give to the Hebrew king, you have to first also look at the story of Solomon and ask yourself, where is the tomb of Solomon? Where did Solomon actually exist as a historical figure? And you will come up with very little evidence. Yet you you get a lot of evidence of the existence of the many, many different queens, such as Makeda in ancient Kush. But then the story that makes her famous is a Solomonic story. In fact, she becomes a... Uh, what you call a, a victim of the patriarchy of Solomon in the story, in the narrative of the Bible, because uh, the, both the Bible and the Kebranegas, the Glory of Kings, the Ethiopian book, the Glory of Kings, or in Islam, where she is called Bilkis, Queen Bilkis, right? She exists, she exists in the Quran. But when you look at African stories of queen, such as Queen Makeda, you find that she is much more powerful. She was a princess, by the way, when she went to see... Uh, when she went to see uh, Solomon, she was not a princess. When she went to see Solomon, she seems disempowered. She doesn't seem like this great emperor who reigns over armies and economies that stretch forth from the bottom of Ethiopia all the way to the north of Sudan. She, she seems like a person who is a victim of the wiles of a prince who loves women, who happens to impregnate her and gets, her, gets us the king Menelik, Menelik I. You know? He tricked her with spices in the Quran, they say that, you know, he took her with some spices uh, and she was thirsty and then he slept with her, you know, which basically would put either they were lovers or it was a rape. We have to look at those kind of stories like really deeply and incisively so that you can actually look at the truth and the fiction and the poetry and what are we being told about the kingdom of Israel in relation to the kingdom of Ethiopia. Now, what we know about the relationship of Israel and Ethiopia, uh, or even Kush at the time, what we know is that the kingdom of Ethiopia is much older than even Jacob. It's much older, even in the book of Genesis, 
Ethiopia that is mentioned, even in the books that precede the book of Genesis, the Sumerian books, the Enuma Elish and all those ancient Sumerian books, Ethiopian queendoms already existed before the establishment of the, of the Solomonic kingdom. How come then a queen that great becomes subdued by a king who is of a younger kingdom, you know, because of his wisdom? How can he even be wiser than her? when she has presided over an heritage that is much older than history can can even uh, teach, right? But the point I'm making this is similar to what my sister was asking about the queen, the earth, the earth mother. I'm linking the same thing of the queen to the the earth mother. She said, oh, it's mother earth, mother earth gives birth to everything, yes, but why is the earth called mother earth? Again, there is a Eurocentric look at what, what the earth is. In ancient African kingdoms, the earth was looked at as a great father with an erect penis, you know, <laughs> who is called Geb, which later in amongst the Ngonid kingdom we call Makeba. The word Makeba, who is a person, a, a living person, comes from the ancient, ancient Kushite and ancient Kemetic god Geb, who is the consort of the earth, of the sky mother. Mm. There's a sky mother note, who is the lover of the earth god. Geb, who is a man, who is firm, right? He is firm. He is the foundation of this kingdom, the father of the kings, kings Osa, kings Heru, all these different kings, according uh, up to King Menes of Ethiopia, I mean, of ancient uh, Kush, who built the Great Pyramid in Kemet and in Sudan. So the point I'm making here is that for us to actually go back to Africology, and go back to the future of Africology. We have to re-examine the history that we are told through Bibles, through Qurans, and through histories written by Europeans, and change the way we view even the earth. Because the earth has both female powers and the masculine powers, but we never look at the masculine powers of the earth because we do not, that mythology is not taught in school. That mythopoetic mm-hmm. history is not taught in school. What is taught in school is a European handout that's all, uh, great Earth Mother, Gaia, you know, and all these things. But most people know about Gaia, but they don't know about Ma'at, which is a great mother. They don't know about Heteru, which is another great mother. They don't know about Nomdet. They don't know about Namhoi. You know, they don't know about uh, uh, Oshun. So we need to de- de- decolonize our mind from thinking European, even if it sounds sweet. Oh, it's Earth Mother. Oh, it's a... Uh, it's the, what do you call it? The Easter. Yeah. Without understanding who Esther is, the Easter, the Astate, you know, you'll find that even Easter herself was a black woman. Where does the bunny come in and the eggs? Where does all these other pagan rituals come in? They come from Europe. Sure. Burying African history, burying the black woman again, devaluing her mm. by changing our focus from the matrilineal, matriarchal beginnings of everything. We need to start wrapping up our conversation, Brother Menzi. There's so much to it, so many layers. Um, but there's one we have not really uh, given a spotlight to, and uh, she's proudly South African. There's currently a lot of controversy around her, yes. Queen Mujaji. Mm. Yes, the mother, the, the, the rain queen. Yeah. Now again, the rain queens are part of a lineage of uh, rain queens that exist in all different parts of Africa. Amongst the Oromo in Ethiopia, they are rain queens, you know. Amongst the the, 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 the people in Senegal, you know, Lingye Ndoyendemba uh, was, the, was the granddaughter of Lingye Fatim Beye, 
you know, which is a female maternal kingdom. They were also considered reign queens in Senegal, you know, amongst the, what is called Gangwane right now, the land of the Nanane originally, uh, the Nanane being the Masego kingdom, right? It was the queen mother, they, they, the Dengwane, which are the Lamini, gained lots of these rituals uh, of rainmaking from the queen mothers of the Ramani kingdom, which we need a whole different program just to discuss that and how a, a particular kingdom that reigned for a thousand years begins to uh, dwindle, and uh, not dwindle, but basically changes basically just surnames, because it's only the surnames that change, but the rituals remain the same, right? So the similar with Queen Mojaji. The Queen the Mojaji is uh, a part of the of the. Uh, you see, again, I was saying that that governance in African uh, in African civilization was not just about the power of rulers, those who sit on the throne. It was about the influence that people would have on agriculture, on culture, on spirituality. And for me, Queen Mojaji is more than just. A, a, a reigning, it's not a military power, but it's a natural power. It's a power that has something to do with the spirituality. And spirituality has a lot to do with rainmaking. And that rainmaking ritual, as I said, existed all around uh, that region in Zimbabwe. You have rainmakers, kingdoms, even kings, who are known as rainmakers. And you find if you taste their history, some are Tonga, some are Karanga, some are Kalanga, you'll find that they are related with Queen Mujaj. They are related with the Benda. They are related with the Lua. They, they are related with the with the people of the Congo also. They are basically a lineage of rain queen. So when you look at them, you look at Mujaji, you, you find that you are not talking about just a personality. You are not talking about a person. You are talking about a, a function, a function that exists throughout cultural uh, unity yeah. of Africa. And, and, and I think there's so many conversations we need to have, uh, uh, but the one around Queen Mujaji and how things are currently um, in, in, in that royal household, they, they, they scare us. Because, the, the battle for succession, oh, the succession battle. It scares us because it feels like a lineage is going to be lost. Uh, well, it, it can only be lost if the people that preside over it do not want to, they, 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 they don't value it. If the, if, if the uh, people uh, don't see it as something sacred that should be preserved, then it will die. Just like any culture or any language, if it is not used, it dies out. It becomes a dead language. So if the men that are wanting to accept the, 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 the tradition of the rain queen, they don't see it as something valuable worth preserving, and they only see it as part of their own, uh, how do you call it, their own uh, kind of like selfish interest. They're just looking at selfish interest. They're looking at Sasa. They're looking at uh, South African, uh, what, what, what do you call this fund? There's a fund for for royals in South Africa. You know, if they're only looking at, at, at profits, then they don't really value their culture. Mm. It's up to the people to fight to preserve it, but they have to understand why it's important, not just for themselves, but why it's important for the whole of the Southern African uh, region. 
as we close off, here's a message I'm going to read. Uh, it says, good morning, my sister and your guest. I'm listening to your very interesting topic. My name is Philemon Gianni from Woodbank. Christianity comes with the colonialism to mislead the indigenous people from Africa, even overseas. God gave commandment to follow and be set on high above all nations and punishment if you don't follow. Read Deuteronomy 28 verses 1 to 14. Our blessings and uh, verse uh, 15 to 68 are the curses which will come upon us if you don't follow the law. Um, well, uh, yeah, I don't know if you'd like to comment on that as we wrap up our conversation, uh, Brother Mason. Uh, can I just say no comment? <laughs> Let's keep it clean. I agree with you. Mm. Let's keep it clean and allow the ATMA to, to air their yes, view. Yes, um, yes, everyone has the right. I'm, I'm looking forward to more conversations with you. This one has been very informative and I, I'm trusting that the, the African mind is going to wake up to who she really is so that we can embrace ourselves holistically and start doing the right thing. How do we follow you? Uh, people, if want, they want to re well, let me put it this way. These conversations, we hold them mostly on the Ikambi page on YouTube. There's something called Ikambi, Natural Healing, where we speak about basically medicine, African natural medicines, and we touch on mythology, we touch on society, we touch on culture, but it is all surrounding the use of, uh, the family use of medicines, so that we do not depend on doctors or people that we need to pay to actually heal ourselves, but we are teaching on Ikambi, Natural Healing, on YouTube. We basically have conversations with healers, whether it's Sangoma, whether it's naturopaths, whether it's homeopaths, whether it's just people who are dealing with natural medicine. But what we do, we try to contextualize it within the African setting. So people can go there, they can subscribe, or they can find me on the greenunkworks.wordpress.com Excellent. Site. Thank you so very much for joining us. Blessed love. Service Delivery Watch on the Morning Bliss. Service Delivery Watch and uh, this uh, morning uh, we are going to be addressing an issue that came to us um, via email to um, uh, the show producer ben at sfm.co.za from students of the University of South Africa, UNISA law students. I'm going to firstly, before I introduce our guests who have uh, yeah, who are going to come on and speak to us who have sent this letter. I'm going to firstly read their letter that they sent to us. It says, Dear Benzito, I'm writing this email with a heavy heart. I'm a final year LLB student at UNISA. We were recently afforded the opportunity to write an FI concession exam, which is for students who have one or two modules remaining in order to complete the qualification. This after writing a very difficult and unfair two-hour exam with long questions last year October, we've been begging and pleading with the lecturer 
who's now retired, and the dean to grant us a rewrite. They didn't grant us uh, last year, but this year some students were granted the FI concession opportunity, and some are awaiting a supplementary exam in June this year. Upon writing the FI concession uh, in March, we waited for two weeks to receive results, which is astonishing because online exam results normally come out sooner. These were released at a staggered basis from Monday to yesterday. Uh, some students passed with 50%, which is the standard mark for FI. They stop marking at 50% to pass you. The rest of us failed with 40%. Now, how come everyone who failed received the same mark? It was really unexpected because the exam was a 25-question online quiz. We've been emailing everyone, the dean, lecturers, um, exam department, SRC, no one is willing to help. Either they ignore or send you from pillar to post. We just want them to review our marks. We are delayed by this module conveyancing since last year, October. We can't get articles, can't go to law school for practicals or anything. Our dreams and plans have been delayed. There's a huge problem of maladministration in the private law department, specifically conveyancing module. Current students are also complaining about non-communication. Please assist us in any way that you can. We've now resorted to media houses because we are stuck. That is the email that Brad Benzito received yesterday morning. Upon receiving this email, Brad Benzito and I, we were doing our PI work because we wanted to get response. You know, the students who sent this letter sent us numbers for the dean, um, for, for the lecturers, the departments that they have contacted. To no avail, we got no response. Um, then we decided to go to the communications department for UNISA and Brabenzito emailed them as well. Uh, they have not responded. We tried to call and explain the magnitude of what is happening, the, the unfairness of what is happening. But still, nothing up until now. And we were very clear that we will be talking to students who have complained. We shared this email that the students sent to us. It seems the students have also gone out to social media about this. And here we are. We are going to be speaking to these students, but with no response or no, no no sort of assistance from the university. If someone is listening from UNISA right now, either people we have contacted or people that are listening and they work for UNISA, please interact with us. The line is open. We need a resolution for these young people. 086-000-2032. That's where you can call in. Or WhatsApp 614 you can also email ben at safm.co.za.